We're in a series that we started last week called Collision. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews through the month of um, January. And basically the premise of the the sermon series is that as a follower of Christ, you have to realize that you kind of are in a collision with the culture around you. That we are clashing with a culture that really is not Christian. It's basically anti-Christian or at least post-Christian, however you want to word it. And so I posed a question about this series that I hope to answer uh, this month, and it's this. How does a follower of Jesus honor God, which is what we're supposed to do, grow in their faith and reach people for Jesus in a collision with a culture that is hostile to Jesus? If you have a culture that's hostile to us and we're in a collision, then how do we do the things you're supposed to do? Honor God, reach people, grow in our faith. Now, last week, I mentioned that one of the underlying factors of this collision is a philosophy, which is really a worldview that kind of exists in, in uh, today, uh, entitled moral relativism. And moral relativism is what you see when people say, you know, you create your own reality, you do you, uh, those kind of things. It's, it's the concept, it's the idea that there is no absolute moral objective or law that we all have to hold to. There's not one overarching guiding moral authority or principle for, for all of us. And, and so we looked at that last week. And uh, as the kind of the thing, and, and, and when I began the message last week, or I began the series, I was in the first two verses of Hebrews, and there in chapter one, which said, God, after he spoke long ago to, the prof- to our fathers and the prophets, through many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, or through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom all the world was made. And so what we see is that God reveals himself to us. And he does it progressively. Whenever God reveals himself to us, that is his authority. The ultimate and complete revelation of God to us is Jesus. He is the final revelation of God, and he therefore becomes the final authority to us. Which brings us to the missions today. A continuation in um, chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 3 and 4. It's a new sentence, probably in your Bible. It's not in the Greek. It's a continuation. It's a message entitled, The One. And in this message entitled, The One, I seek to answer this question today. Is Jesus the only one? Or is there some other person, belief, philosophy, or combination that gets us to God? It could be he's the revelation of God, the ultimate authority of God, okay, but is he the only one that gets us to God? And so today I'm going to begin the message talking about being between um, two worlds. Um, last week I mentioned uh, a man named John R. W. Stott who died uh, 2011 at the age of 90, and if you're younger, you may think, well, what does that old dead guy have to do with anything about today? And that's probably a legit question many times, but Stott was this profound author, writer, scholar, pastor that influenced my generation. As I shared with you last week, he influenced me greatly, which means if you come here very often at all, he influences you, whether you know it or not. And what I brought up last week, was that in one of his books, he reminds us or tells us that Christianity is counterculture. We run counter to the culture around us. We're in conflict with the culture all the time. But the culture, culture is not Christian. It is anti-Christian. And it's always been that way. He wrote a book in May of 1982. It was a preaching book. Uh, it became a standard text 
for those of us in seminary, I remember in the you know, mid-80s when I was in a preaching class in seminary, I read it. And the name of the book was called Between Two Worlds. And its subtitle was The Art of Preaching in the 20th Century. It has since changed that last part because it's not the 20th century. And it says, I think, the challenge of preaching uh, today. But I still have the old book. I gave it to you, didn't I? To try to help you with preaching, didn't I? Yeah, I thought that. <laughs> No, you are an excellent preacher. You're, you're really getting there. And uh, I don't know why I picked on you. You're just sitting there all innocent as can be, not a care in the world. And I just pop you. I don't know. Felt like it, I guess. But the part that really stuck out is when you talk about being between two worlds, and this has always stuck with me in my preaching every time I get up to share God's word. I'm living in the congregation of a group of people between two worlds. There, there are those who are of the Christian faith who follow Jesus who are of that world, but yet there are people who are not of that world. You, you do not follow Christ. Or even if you do try to follow Christ, you're stuck in another dimension, another world, another culture. And it's always the challenge. I, it's really hit me back in, in, in early 90s when I was uh, in Laredo. And a lady who went to my church said, you know, I'm a Christian, but I also believe in reincarnation. I'm like, what? Those things don't... Those things don't coexist together. Those are two opposite worlds. Resurrection and, res- and reincarnation can't exist. She says, well, I believe it. I believe they do. And you, know, and you can't convince her otherwise. And, and I begin to realize, and I see and I experience all the time, people that I encounter in church, people that will be sitting in chairs today, here, but in all our four services, that do the same thing. They take bits and pieces of, of Christianity as the basis and they add other religious beliefs and ideas into it. We call that syncretism. And syncretism is a part, really, of moral relativism to some degree. And syncretism, uh, Webster's kind of defines it this way. It is the combination or reconciliation of differing beliefs or practices in religion, philosophy, etc. In other words, you take different practices, beliefs, behaviors from whatever, and you combine them. And you come up with something new or just some kind of combination of all of those things. And we see it in the world in which we live today. It happens. I I see it sometimes when people talk about, you know, we need to remember that God is a loving God. And he is, but I don't always know what they mean by loving God. Because more and more what I encounter is that people who think of God as this spark, this light that exists in all of us, this animistic, pantheistic view of God, and then they'll talk about God in ways that personify, like he's, you know, he's kind, he's compassionate, he's loving. Those two views of God don't coexist philosophically in, in a faith world. They don't coexist. And yet they combine them. They try to make it work. I see people, you know, and Christians do this all the time when someone passes. They'll say, you know, they're up in heaven. They're looking down at you, watching over you, kind of taking care of you and guiding you. I mean, that's not taught in the New Testament anywhere. That's a pagan view of life. It's called ancestral worship, where you believe your ancestors guide you. And yet I hear that all the time. And if you say that, stop. If your loved one is with Jesus, he's not looking down at you. If your loved one's not with Jesus, well, doesn't really matter at that point what they're doing. I mean, it's just the way it goes. And so what we need to realize and we need to understand, and this is so important, is that the Christian understanding of God is in conflict with any other religion or philosophy. It forces you to make a choice. The understanding we have of God, if you're a follower of Christ, according to the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, is in conflict. It is in a collision with every other religion, every other philosophy. 
And at some point, you have to make a choice. A lot of Christians think, no, I can do it. I can make it work. And so they'll take Jesus, and they'll design their own version of Jesus. I mention this all the time. And they'll add these things that come from other cultures, and that come from other you know, religions and beliefs, and, and they'll kind of give in to the culture because they want to be accepted by the culture, and they kind of open up their arms and embrace the culture. And when you do that, and some of you do that who are sitting here, you need to understand you are trapped between two worlds. You are trapped between two worlds. And it can't stay that way. So we're going to go back to Hebrews, where we were last week. As I told you last week, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews. It was probably written in about the mid-60s. But we do know what the general purpose of it and who is being written to. It was being written to people who were Jewish, who had already begun to follow Jesus, or who were thinking about following Jesus. But in the process of that, they had realized that they were kind of left alone. They were abandoned, that their Jewish family and friends had left them behind and wouldn't have anything to do with them. That while they were part of the church, that church was small and it was struggling, and, and that the Gentiles under Nero were beginning to persecute them. And so they're thinking, why in the world am I a follower of Jesus? This isn't working out. Why don't I just go back to being Jewish in the, in the religious sense. I go back to following the Old Testament law, or what they call the law. I follow the law of Moses. I just go back to doing that. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you abandon Christ to go back to the law, you have forsaken everything. And he sets out to show how Jesus is in every way superior to the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament period, he'll talk about how he's superior to the angels later on in this chapter. He's superior to Moses, the law, the sacrificial system. In fact, in chapter 8, he says all of that old covenant is obsolete. It doesn't exist. It's useless. There's a new covenant. That's Jesus. So why are you going to give up Jesus? And so he starts off, as we saw last week, talking about Jesus is the way God reveals himself ultimately and completely. And now he's going to go and move into the fact that he is the only one that we can turn to and for good reason. And so verses three and four, I'm going to break down into about three sections. And the first section is this, the nature of Jesus reveals he is deity. The nature of Jesus reveals this, he's God. So why would you leave him behind? Verse three says this, he is the radiance of his glory. Now, the word glory is the concept of light or brilliance. What we need to understand about God is that God is holy. And to say God is holy is to say that God is cut apart. He's complete. God is complete into himself, perfect. So how do people who are sinful and in rebellion against God ever experience the holiness of this God that we worship and we love? Well, we do it through his glory. So the concept of glory is the manifestation or the revealing of the holiness of God, oftentimes characterized in the brilliance and the light. Now, we glorify God in the sense that we recognize he is holy. So we give glory to the glorious one. We honor, we worship, we praise the one who is holy. So when you glorify God, you're recognizing the manifestation of his holiness that he has made known to you. It says that he is the radiance of this glory. Now the word radiance speaks of being the one who has it, it has to do with light also, that he is the radiance of the light. Now, some of your versions have reflection. And while reflection is a legitimate translation, it doesn't make the best sense. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 12, quotes Jesus as saying this, I'm the light of the world. Jesus has light. 
He has the light that is the light of God. If he simply reflects light, he's reflecting what he doesn't have. This moon reflects the light that's not its own. But if you go outside and it's not cloudy, you'll experience the light of the sun in itself. You'll experience the radiance. He is the radiance of the glory of God because he is the light. And because he is that light of God, he is therefore deity. He is God. But not only does he do that, radiate the glory of God, also we see that he is the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. Now, the nature of God is his essence. It's who he is. It's that holiness. But it's the, it's the real God. Now, we, as Christians, we understand a concept called the Trinity. That there is one God, one God, only one. But he has three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The nature of the one God is the same for Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, the functionality, that can be different. When the Son left heaven and he came to earth, he became subordinate to the Father, not in his nature or his essence or in being God, but in what he did on earth. That's why he could say, Father, not your will be done, but mine. So th there is that sense of that you can, functionality is different than the essence. So since they all knew that Jesus was the Son of God, he was the Messiah, they understood that person. What the author of Hebrews wants to make sure is they understand. He is in nature God as well. He is God. He is the exact representation. That term exact representation means, it's the Greek word character. Character. Um, we used to go to New Orleans a lot, uh, Debbie and I. Even, even Kelly was with us, Kelly. We love to go there, French Quarter, hang around, great food, architecture, history, you know, go on the river, all that stuff. And there are, in Jackson Square, some unique individuals. If you've ever been there, you understand <laughs> how unique they are. And there are these unique people who like to draw caricatures of people. And so my daughter Kelly, when she was a teenager, saved her for money, and they drew, they drew her picture, her caricature. And uh, it looks like her. It resembles her. That's what that concept means. Back then, they would take coins, and the coin always had the stamp of the emperor. At the time this was written, that would be Nero. And, and so that caricature, that caricature of the, of the emperor would be stamped onto that coin. And you would know that it was his. It belonged to him. That's why Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God. So it bore his imprint. The son in his nature bears the imprint of deity, of God. Why? Because he is God. But it also says this in verse 3. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. The term uphold means to maintain or, or sustain. He maintains all things. There was a picture in Greek mythology of Atlas holding the world, carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. The word maintain that she used for uphold is the idea of moving forward, not just carrying in a static way, but moving forward to the desired outcome. God in his creation had a desired outcome. The son moves it along. He does it by his word. This word which has power. To the Jew, God spoke the world into existence. And we believe that too. That when everything was created, God spoke. It was created. Here Jesus speaks, and in his speaking, he maintains the purpose with power. The power of creation, that raw power, that raw ability that God has, he has. So here's what it says about Jesus, about his nature. That he is the glory of God made known to us. He is absolutely God in his full nature. And he continues the very purpose of God in all that is created. So his nature reveals that he is deity. So why would you leave him for something less than that? 
But we also see this in verse 3, that the work of Jesus reveals he is Lord. What he does reveals that he is Lord. The idea of Lord is the one we worship and bow down before. So it says this in verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, so one of the tasks that Jesus did when he came ultimately is to go to the cross, to purify us of sins or to cleanse us, forgive us, provide that. But he's using the, the language of the tabernacle. Now, to the devout you, every year on the Day of Atonement, there would be the high priest going in, taking the bull and sacrificing it and covering all the sins of the people to make forgiveness, to make purification. And then the people could go on their own throughout the year, every day if they wanted, and have sacrifices, purification sacrifices, to remove the sin, the guilt and the stain of the sin. But it's something they had to do all the time. It was never finished. Here it says, Jesus made it, and it was over. By the way, I, I am sometimes just so confused, and I don't understand why people who, I, I was taught this as a young guy in, in middle school, by, in my church, why Christians think that when Jesus at the second coming is going to reestablish the temple sacrifice. It doesn't say that in the New Testament. Anywhere. Ever. At all. Read the book. You'll see it never says that. People just make that up. Besides that, why? If he is, the, the book of Hebrews says, and it'll say it later on, he is the final ultimate sacrifice. You finished it. Why would you want to go back to the old way of doing things? When Jesus did everything that had to be done, you want to go back to always doing it over and over? That's what he's saying. He made purification of sins. What did he do? Well, he's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, that's where he belongs. He left heaven to come to us. And when he was through doing all his work, he went back to be with the Lord, to the place he belonged, with the majesty. You know what you do with the majesty? You worship him. The right hand is the place of honor. He is where he always should be. So that we would worship him there. Why? Because he is Lord. And so his work reveals he is Lord. The other thing is that his superiority of Jesus reveals he is the one and only of God. Jesus is superior to all things, dealing with the law. He's the one and only. So it says this in verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. Now they believed back then that and we see this in the Old Testament. The angels were mediators between God and man. They were the ones, the go-betweens, that God would speak to the angels. And they actually believed that the Old Testament law of Moses was given by the angels. Acts 7, 53, as Stephen is dying, those are part of his last words. In Galatians uh, chapter 3, Paul makes mention of that. So when Jesus left heaven to become on earth, to live as a man, he became lower than the angels in, in the hierarchy. Not by his essence, nature, but by his subordinate standard as human. Now he says he has become much better, or he is back where he belongs. He is superior to the angels. By the way, as a Christian, we have a lot of unusual ideas about angels. I know, and they can be confusing. I hear people all the time talk about their angels watching over them, or angels guiding them. Let me just share this with you. This is an important consideration. The Holy Spirit of God lives with inside me as a follower of Jesus. Part of his task is to guide me and lead me. I don't want an angel doing that. Why would I want an angel when I have the Holy Spirit? Why are you settling for a used car when you can have the brand new one for the same price free? I just made that up. I'm going to use that again. Let me forget that. That's a good, I don't think it's, I think it's a good analogy. Why would you do that? And, and so here's the thing. Having been much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so when he assumed his bright and proper place, 
He, he resumed and inherited the name. Didn't tell us what the name is, but the name that defines his character is his. And it's excellent. It is superior. So here's what you see. But why would you go back, the author of Hebrews said, to Judaism? When you have this Jesus, you're going to leave Jesus when he is, he is obviously God. Because his nature reveals that. He is the Lord you worship. Because his work revealed that. And he is superior to the mediators of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Which, by the way, no longer is in effect because the New Covenant has replaced it. Why would you go back to that? Which brings us to the fact that those people who were trapped between two worlds, which they were, were going to have to choose sides. And so at some point it comes around to choosing sides. Um, tomorrow night there's a football game being played. It's a college championship game. I don't watch a lot of college ball. I watch pro, but I'm going to watch it for sure because Georgia is playing TCU. Now, you may not know this, but TCU stands for Texas Christian University. I don't care about the Christian University part because they're really not, but the Texas part I care about. <laughs> There's a lot of kids from Texas playing ball. And so what happened, and, and by the way, my last church, my last church was full of horned frogs and people who went to TCU. I mean, it was full of both. So all those things. That worked better at 945. They laughed at that. And I, I made it up. At 945, I made it up. This is show when you make it up at the spur of the moment, it's always better than I put it in. I'm not going to put that even at 1215. Forget it. But, you know, any time I watch a ball game and I'm trying to be neutral, I always pick a side. I always pick a side. At some point, you got to choose a side, man. You can't keep trying to mix Jesus and the culture. Because if you keep doing that, you've already picked your side. You've picked the culture. When I was in Laredo, um, Laredo, I'm sorry. <laughs> the South Texas jaw comes in. When I was in Laredo, uh, it, it was common. They did a lot of civic stuff. They liked to have the pastors come and pray. You know, benediction, invocations. I don't know why they just did. And Laredo is a very, very Catholic town. But they would still have the non-Catholic guys come. And so we're at this function. And I don't even remember what it was. And I was there, I think, to do the, the benediction. And then the Episcopal guy named Al was there to do uh, the invocation. So Al has his prayer. And Al's prayer is, you know, God, we call you many names. We call you Father. We call you Yahweh. We call you Jesus. We call you Allah. We call you Buddha. We call you Christian. I'm thinking, man, you moron. What are you doing? What is wrong with your brain? What, have you, and he has just accepted all these other versions of God. What I found fascinating is that the keynote speaker for this, and the main speaker, was the uh, superintendent of the Loretto Independent School District, Dr. Trevino, who's a devout Catholic. At some point along there, he just started talking about God as being the only true God, that there were no other gods and no other faiths or religions that matched up. And I'm like, way to go, Dr. Trevino. Way to turn that around. Yay, Catholics. Catholics won. Episcopal zero. Baptists, we were neutral. I had no part of that pulpit. <laughs> but we do that in our culture all the time. And some of you in that same place. There'll be people who will come to our church and they're, 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 trying, they're trying to appease the culture. They're trying to mix the culture in. Thinking, well, if we mix the culture in, maybe we'll reach them. Or maybe, you know, it, it, some of the culture's right. Maybe there's some truth to all those other religions. And so you, you take Christianity as the baseline and you add other things into it. And the author of Hebrews says, you can't do that, man. You just can't do it. Jesus is either it or not. And you're stuck between two worlds. So let me give you some biblical understanding of how we need to deal with the culture that we collide with. 
What do we need to do? Well, first, be fluent in Jesus. I shared this last week. I'll probably share it again. I've come to like this phrase. I may, I, it may have come from somewhere else. I'd never read it. I just made it up. But maybe I probably stole it somewhere. Just the good thing about being my age, I forget so much stuff. I don't remember who I stole it from, so I just take full credit. But here's the thing. You need to be fluent in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, be fluent in Jesus. It's always my goal to be fluent in Jesus. I'm not. I'll never get there. I just finished reading the Gospel of Mark, which I preached through last year. Mark. I just finished it. I'm... I'm going to preach from John 20 for Easter, the whole six weeks in there. So I'm, I'm, in a few weeks, I'll start cranking out a slow study of John. I know that in the summer, I'm preaching from Acts chapter 1 and 2. You know what I'm going to do in May? I'm going to start really reading through Acts. Acts is fascinating. You know why Acts is so interesting? Because it centers around two guys, Peter and Paul. You know what they did? They went to a culture they were in collision with, and they shared with them Jesus without compromise. And said, you pick a side better pick Jesus. And you've got to be fluent in Jesus. And what else you've got to do is understand this. You've got to strive for clarity about Jesus. And you can't strive for clarity if you're not fluent in Jesus. I encounter people constantly. And here's what they do. That co-op, they take the Jesus terms, they take the New Testament terms, they pull them out, and they give them their own meaning, and then they use them in conversation to throw back at us. A few months back, someone was throwing, throwing in my face and we were having a conversation. Well, I thought, you know, you Christians were supposed to love your enemies. I said, we, we are. Would you like me to explain to you what that word love means in the original Greek text and why you got it wrong? And they said, no. I said, okay. But you and I don't agree. I find myself constantly asking people, tell me what you mean. When you say that God is love, well, what do you mean by love? Because you co-opt the word love and you change its meaning. I'm always asking them, explain to me what you mean. And then let me tell you what I mean. But the only way I can tell you what I mean is if I have become fluent in Jesus. And if you're not fluent in Jesus, you, 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 you can't clarify. But you need to. And you've got to seek for that. I'm always looking for examples. I'm always looking for ways to explain. Think about this message, how hard I worked really to clarify. When I talked about the glory of God, I tried to clarify by telling you what it means in relation to holiness. I talked about the, the, the nature of God, the exact representation. I tried to clarify what it meant to be the exact representation. I want you to understand. I don't want you to leave confused. So strive to clarify. Thirdly, never compromise Jesus, ever. And what you believe, in the way you behave, don't compromise. My greatest fear, I think, as a pastor, is that I'll bring disgrace to God. And in bringing disgrace to God, I'll bring disgrace to this church, and then I will tear this church apart by something I did, by compromising Jesus. I don't want to compromise. Because once you start compromising, you can't ever stop. Think about your life. In the way you believe, and the way you behave, how often do you compromise Jesus? How often do you do that? Listen, I, I tell people who are followers of Christ and I know they're close to you, man, I love you. I care about you. I want to be your friend. But I may not accept the way you live your life. I may not accept the way you believe. I may not accept that as being okay. It doesn't mean I don't love you. 
And it doesn't mean I won't be your friend. Now listen, if they tell me I don't want that, that's on them. But it's not on me. But what I'm not going to do is compromise my beliefs. I'm not going to compromise my behavior to try to connect with them. Because I can't compromise Jesus. With that in mind, understand this. When it comes to the conflict between our culture and Christ, you have to choose a side. And by the way, if you don't think you you have to choose a side, you've already chosen. There's a conflict. There's a collision between the culture we live in and Jesus. And you're going to choose a side one way or the other. It'd be best if you chose Jesus. Sometimes we find ourselves trapped between two worlds. If we go back to Hebrews, it makes it clear. Jesus is the only one. So I asked the question at the beginning of the message. Is Jesus the only one? Or is there some other belief, a philosophy? Or is there some other religion or person that you can kind of take or some combination of those in order to get to God? And Hebrews tells us there is no one or anything else you can do to come to God but Jesus. So some of you today, you may need to follow Jesus. You may need to trust Jesus to be your savior because he isn't. Because you have picked the wrong side. And by the grace that God has, through the faith that God provides, he's given you the opportunity to come to Christ. Some of you who are believers and followers of Jesus, but are you fluent in Jesus? Maybe your goal this year is to become fluent in Jesus. To become the person who is able to give clarity because you have become fluent. Make that your goal. Make that your desire. For some of you, there may be people you love and care about. And you want us to pray for them because you know they need Christ. So we have our invitation. We'll be here at the front. Ladies, if you'd like to speak to another woman, there there would be one here. If you want to give your life to Christ, join the church, pray for someone, whatever you want to do, you come. But understand when you walk out of here, you're in a collision. Be sure you have picked the right side. Be sure you follow the one. So Lord, we come before you thankful for Jesus, who is our Savior. And thankful, Father, for the fact that we can love you and we can serve you. God, I pray in the name of Christ, and I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will have as our desire to only follow Jesus, no one else, that we will stop mixing in the culture around us. For you will not accept this, but instead, with great simplicity and and clarity, and Father, without compromise, we'll follow Jesus, be fluent in Jesus, and glorify him. And in doing so, glorify you and honor you in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? You come.